Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, if you look at chapters 9 and 10 today in our study of the book of 1 Samuel. Have you ever dug through a lost and found bin at the church or maybe at your work or a school? There's some interesting things in there. Some things are treasures and pretty important, and others not so much. So I looked through our DSC Lost and Found on Friday. I found a Toyota key. I was tempted to go around and try it out on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Free car to somebody, maybe. I found some designer prescription glasses. Probably cost a good bit of money. But also in there was a, a kid's nasty flip-flop. <laughs> One flip-flop. I assume this child and parents have moved on from that one flip-flop and the one that's at the house and missing one to boot. Well, there were many barrettes in there. There, were, there was an unsharpened pencil. It's a mixed bag, isn't it? The, the lost and found is a mixed bag. I'd like you to tuck away those two phrases as we think about 1 Samuel 9 and 10 this morning. Lost and found and a mixed bag. You see, 1 Samuel 9 is a kind of lost and found story, an ironic lost and found story, because one thing goes lost and a totally other thing gets found. As 1 Samuel 9 and 10 tell the story of that which is found, they present it as a bit of a mixed bag. Or rather, we should say, the one who is found in these chapters is presented to us as a bit of a mixed bag. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves now. Chapter 9 begins with the simple introduction of a new character in the story of First and Second Samuel. So let's read the first two verses to start. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here we meet Saul. This is only noteworthy if you know the rest of the story of 1 Samuel. Of course, he's a major figure in the story of 1 Samuel. But, but if you're reading this for the first time, this introduction could feel a bit arbitrary. You know that scene at a, a social function when a friend grabs you and says, Ryan, I want to introduce you to Jim. You don't know whether that's important or not until you hear a little bit more about Jim. You don't know if... Jim comes from the same hometown as, as you do, or, or whether you have certain things in common, or, or whether your friend just likes to introduce people um, a lot. So how is Saul introduced to us? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2 tells us he's a handsome young man, none more handsome than he. He's a whole head taller than anyone else in the land. 
That same thing is repeated again in chapter 10. He's a whole head taller. And we're already presented here with Saul being a bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand, he's tall and handsome, but other than that, he doesn't seem to be anything special. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul himself will later attest, you can see this in verse 21, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin? He's tall, but he comes from a small clan and tribe. And further head-scratching is what follows this introduction of Saul. It's a search for donkeys. That's the first of four scenes we see in these two chapters today. The first is a search for donkeys. You see in verse 3, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. Now missing donkeys may seem a bit trivial to us city folk, us modern day city folk, but, but these donkeys would have been a large part of the family's wealth and their livelihood. Losing a significant number of your donkeys might be a bit like today in our world, a tradesman losing his truck with all his tools in it. He can't get to work. He can't do any work. That's a big deal. So this is a significant matter, but probably more common than a tradesman who loses his truck and all his tools. Donkeys will be donkeys. They wander off from time to time. So this was probably not the first time that some of them went wandering off. And you could say in that sense then that this is another average day on the farm. This is part of what it means to live on the farm. The donkeys go missing and dad wakes up the son and says, grab a guy and go look for my donkeys. And so they head out, Saul and a servant. Maybe it'll be a few hours or a few days, but this is probably normal fare for farm life. Look at verse 4. Saul passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and they did not find them. They passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Then look at verse 6. We'll, we'll skip some verses here. We've got 54 verses in all between these two chapters, so we'll be a bit selective from time, for time's sake. Look at verse 6. Saul's servant said to him, since they can't find the donkeys, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. No doubt they're talking about Samuel, the prophet and judge. So now let us go there. Let us go see him. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. He can help us find these donkeys. He'll know. Then there's some discussion about what to bring the prophet as a gift. You can't just go up and ask him for help without bringing something to honor him. And so verses 7 through 10, they discuss what the options are. The servant has a shekel of silver with him. And so they agree that'll do. And they head toward Samuel's city. 
or Samuel's house, his hill. In verses 11 to 14, they stumble upon some women at a well, and they ask for help in, in finding Samuel. They say, these women say, well, as a matter of fact, yeah, he, he's just ahead of you. He's heading to make sacrifice, and, and when you enter the city, you'll see him. You, you can't miss him. And so they do, and that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 14. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Good thing they came across these women, and these women had just seen Samuel, and they can point Saul and the servant in his direction. Now, before we go any further, we have to remember what we saw last week from chapter 8. The elders and the people demanded a king. They demanded that they be given a king, and they wanted a king like the nations have, so a specific kind of king. They say they want a king who will go before us and fight our battles. And that was Yahweh's job description, self-given job description. And so really what they want is a king other than Yahweh God. And God said that this is the case. He said, they have rejected me from being king over them in their demand for a human king like the nations have. We saw last week in chapter 8, Samuel warned the people. He said, a king like the nations will take and take and take and take. And yet the people persisted. They insisted, no, you will give us a king. And so the chapter ended with God giving them over to their desire. A king was God's plan all along. But God's plan was a king under God, not a king instead of God. A king is coming. That's how chapter 8 ended. But what kind? You think you know what kind of king is coming at the end of chapter 8. But now chapter 9 is going to throw us some curveballs. So now, secondly, a second scene, a king revealed. First, a search for donkeys, and then a king revealed. That unusually ordinary pedestrian story of searching for lost donkeys now gets explained to us. Actually, behind the scenes, God is orchestrating a meeting between Saul and the prophet Samuel because God is in the process of revealing a king. Verse 15 and 16. They say, now the day before Saul came, came to Samuel, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Wow. Donkeys get lost, and a king gets found. Saul loses his donkeys, and a kingdom is what he finds, or rather, a kingdom finds him. 
Now, let's just pause here to marvel at God's sovereignty. His sovereign orchestration of events, details, circumstances, and even human decisions to bring about his plan for his people's good and for his glory. Yeah, it's mysterious how his sovereignty intersects with real human decisions, but his sovereignty is nevertheless true, and it's not, minim- not to be minimized. So what looks like happenstance in chapter 9, what looks like ordinary, maybe even unavoidable circumstances, are actually links in a chain to a divinely appointed outcome. Certainly you've marveled at God's links, his chain of providence in your own life before, haven't you? Surely you've recounted the past with words like, do you realize that if he hadn't, then we wouldn't, then it wouldn't have, those kind of things, those conversations? Back in 1996, in Lynchburg, Virginia, a mom picked up a flyer advertising piano lessons, piano lessons that my wife was teaching. That eventually became our connection to Desert Springs Church in 2003. I won't bore you with all the links in that chain, but but that's where it started. That was eventually our connection to Desert Springs in in 2003. It was one link in a chain of ordinary events that led to something so significant and life-altering for us that we live here and not someplace else, that this is our church and not another. If I had picked a different seminary to go to, that connection would have never happened. If I had picked a different seminary to go to, I wouldn't have had Professor Ron Giese for Hebrew. And hence, Ron wouldn't likely be at Desert Springs Church. He would be enjoying green pastures in Virginia, no doubt, or someplace else. But he probably wouldn't have been brought to the desert. We say, who to thunk? Well, God thunk. He thunk it all up. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Isaiah 46 says, I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it and I surely will do it. You can imagine all of the links in the chain of chapter 9 and this encounter between Samuel and Saul. What if the women hadn't been at the well that day? What if the donkeys hadn't gone missing What if the servant hadn't said, hey, I know, how about Samuel? Sometimes we get to look back like that and see the wisdom and the wonder of God's guiding hand. But not always. Don't let 1 Samuel 9 
deceive you into thinking that we always get to hear from God in the interpretation of events. Let's keep firmly in mind that oftentimes we don't see the connections or the reasons or the final goal, especially when we're in the present moment. Often it feels like you're just looking for donkeys. Often it feels like you're just looking for donkeys. Donkeys are just missing. You got a problem. You maybe should turn back and go home. But God is in no less the little things, the unseen things, than he is in the big and the lofty and the history-making things. Don't think God is behind the orchestration of ordinary events only when he's making kings or writing Bible stories. No, he's not strangely absent or aloof in your Monday. He's in it. He's in it even when we can't trace his hand. But back to 1 Samuel 9, let's also marvel at God's amazing, undeserved Mercy that we hear from him to Samuel in those verses we just looked at. Remember that chapter 8 ended with this blistering indictment of God's people and this impending judgment that's coming to them. And the coming king was judgment. Chapter 8 ended with the people rejecting God. And yet in chapter 9, look at verse 16, God still calls them. My people, Israel. In fact, three times he says, my people. Why? Why are they still his people? Well, because he's good to them. He'll grant them a king. He says now, look at verse 16, to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Why? Why would he do that? Because I have seen my people. Because their cry has come to me. As we'll see in upcoming chapters, this doesn't mean that God changed his mind from chapter 8. It's not that he cooled down after a while of thinking about things. He will be faithful to his word and the people will have a king like the nations, like they demanded and like he granted. And yet God can do more than one thing at a time. God so often does more than one thing at a time, and he is in this chapter. Even in his judgment, there is mercy. His loving kindness is over all his works. He's relentless in his covenant love. He's doggedly persistent in his mercy. He can't help but hear and help. And so this coming king is a mixed bag. He is what they asked for, and yet he's better than what they asked for. He will defeat the Philistines. He will be salvation to his people. He will be an answer to their prayer, their cry for help. And so back to the storyline, in verse 17, Saul and Samuel meet. And God tells Samuel, this is the one I told you about. Samuel tells Saul that his donkeys are fine. That's verse 20. 
And Samuel invites Saul to stay for a meal. Verse 24, we read, he gives him the best portion of food, honors him. He knows what's coming. And so Saul spends the night there at Samuel's. The next morning, Samuel sends Saul on his way, but not before telling him more of what's going on here. That's how the chapter ends. Look at verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And then look at the beginning of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. The king is anointed. Thirdly, another scene, we have a multi-layered confirmation. A multi-layered confirmation. Chapter 10 goes on to give Saul three signs which shall confirm what Samuel has said and really what God has said. So in chapter 10, verse 1, the end of verse 1, Samuel says, This shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Three signs. The first, you'll see two men, and they'll say to you, see verse 2, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys. He's been gone a few days now, and, and he's anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So here is a specific place, a specific number of men, and very specific words about a very specific topic. This will be a sign to you. That's the first one. The second sign will be that you come to another very specific place, and three men will meet you. Look at verse 3. One will be carrying, look how specific this is, one will be carrying three young goats. That's just a weird scene in and of itself. One guy carrying three young goats. Another will be carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you, and they will give you two loaves of bread, even though they have three. Very specific. Third sign is even more specific. Samuel says, you'll encounter a group of prophets. They'll be coming down the mountain, celebrating, singing, playing their instruments, and prophesying. So verse 6 of chapter 10 it says, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them, and you'll be turned into another man. Hit pause on that part of the story for right now. In verses 7 to 8, Samuel gives two directions to Saul. So he first gives him three promises or signs or confirmations but then, verse 7 and 8, he gives him two directions. He says, now when these signs meet you, first do, first to do, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Second, to do, verse 8, then go down before me to Gilgal. 
And behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings, to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this. I find it curious that Samuel gave three signs and two directions. And the signs came to pass, we read. In verse 9, we read, all three signs came to pass. And then the story focuses in on the third of the signs. Read verses 10 through 12 with me. Here's the third of the signs being fulfilled. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also now among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, Who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now here's what I mean, that it's curious what's going on here. Three signs were fulfilled Two directions were given, but there's no mention of Saul following the two directions. The first direction in verse 7, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you, sounds vague. It sounds like just a a general, uh, whatever seems right, do it, and know that God's with you. But actually this phrase in verse 7 is in Judges 9, and there it's clearly a military context. This is about battle. What your hand finds to do for the Lord is with you is about war. Now, remember, God had said of Saul back in chapter 9, he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Remember, Samuel said to Saul, you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And notice in chapter 10, verse 5, this whole prophecy scene happened at a garrison of the Philistines. Right near the Philistines. So was Paul, was Saul, rather, supposed to receive the Spirit and prophesy and be changed into another man and then go to war? It certainly seems so. It certainly seems so. He was also told afterward the other direction given to go down before me to Gilgal, verse 8, and wait there for further directions. But after this prophetic moment, well, look at verse 13. What happens? When he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Some scholars suggest that this high place is Saul's home. It's where Daddy Kish lives. The following verses seem to indicate so, and we'll see those in just a bit. Which would mean then that Saul didn't do what Samuel said he should do. He said, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And that probably meant battle. 
And he said, and after that, go to Gilgal and wait there seven days. I'll be there and I'll tell you what's next. But after prophesying, Saul went home. What should we think of this man, Saul? He's a mixed bag, isn't he? He's tall and handsome in appearance, which might signal that he's a king like the nations. But God is clearly in this. I mean, God initiated this, not Saul. God is calling him. God is telling Samuel to anoint him. God will clearly use Saul for these merciful purposes for his people, just as he promised, and just as these meticulous signs are already proving. And yet Saul seems at times obtuse in this story. Did you notice that it was his servant who thought of seeking out the prophet Samuel? It wasn't Saul. When Saul meets Samuel, did you notice he didn't recognize him? Even though we're told back in, in chapter 3, all Israel knew Samuel. Even though Samuel traveled as judge and national leader around to the cities. And he did so for decades. And here Saul is introduced to Samuel. And he says, hey, we're looking for a prophet. Do you know where we can find him? Yeah, me, dummy. And on top of that, it's possible that Saul was given a command to go fight the Philistines in verse 7 of chapter 10, and he didn't follow it. He was told to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel, but there's no mention of that happening at all. Instead, he prophesied and went home. This brings us to the last scene, a curious coronation. A curious coronation. Before we get to the coronation, though, we have another head-scratching moment with Saul. Look at verses 14 to 16. This is why it's likely the high place is home. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where'd you go? And he said, uh, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, well, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. And then the narrator of 1 Samuel tells us, But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Saul had two chances to tell his uncle what was up. Twice. He puts all the focus on donkeys. And some interpreters want to give Saul a pass here. Some of them want to say, what was he supposed to do? Say, I'm now the king. Yeah, but this isn't time for discretion anymore. That whole prophecy thing was very public. It started a national saying. It created a proverb. It's a big deal. His uncle seems to be suspicious that Samuel was told uh, that Saul was told something from Samuel. Tell me everything Samuel told you. Remember, the whole country's waiting for a king to come. And yet, 
Saul just says to his uncle, these aren't the droids you're looking for. (laughs) It's all about the donkeys. Why was Saul being so coy about his anointing? We can't be terribly specific, but, but it has to do with something about fear. It's about fear, not good fear, bad fear. We'll see that still once more in this chapter, and then we'll see it chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. It becomes the driving motivation behind Saul's decisions again and again and again. Fear. Not humility here. Fear. But then we get this coronation. The official coronation starts in verse 17 as Samuel calls all Israel together. And he says to them, see verse 18? He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, literally, I mean, meaning these days, but these days, not the days of Egypt, these days, you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And, and you've said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. It looks like judgment's coming. I mean, these people don't know about Saul. They don't know about the, the private anointing. Maybe they don't know about even the prophecy yet. At least some of them don't. And so Samuel says, thousands at a time line up according to your tribes. And what does he do? He casts lots, trying to show God's hand in the selection of Saul before the people. So he casts lots on the 12 tribes, and it falls on the tribe of Benjamin. And then he has the tribe of Benjamin pass through, And then the lot falls on the clan that is Saul's clan. And then that clan passes through and the lot falls to Saul. And then look at verse 21. But when they sought him, the second half, but when they sought him, he couldn't be found. What? Where'd he go? Well, the next verse. God reveals where he was. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. He went hiding. The tallest dude of the land went hiding. Again, not humility, but fear. He's taller than anyone in the land, and oh, how little he is on the inside. It's a curious coronation. Nevertheless, they find him. They get him. Samuel presents him before the people, and the people shout, verse 24, Long live the king! And then verse 25, it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and he presented them before the Lord. What's Samuel doing here? 
He's reminding them of what God's plan for kingship was from the beginning. Remember Deuteronomy 17 last week? When you go into the land and you ask for a king, you can have a king, but here's what he should be like. He should be humble. He should be for the people. He shouldn't be all about the money or the ladies. He should be about God's word. He should read it daily. He should have his own copy of the law. So Samuel makes a copy of the law, teaches on what the king should be. He teaches this to all the people and, of course, to Saul as well. So everyone went home rejoicing. Well, not everyone. The last verse. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But Saul held his peace. What? Why did some reject Saul? Well, it wasn't because he wasn't impressive. He was the tallest of the land. They wanted a king like the nations. They got one. No, they, they rejected this man because... Samuel had made it clear that God is still king. You notice the word king didn't pop up in this chapter until the people said, long live the king. Before that, it's a different word. God will anoint you prince. Prince. He's not going to be king like you think of in those days or maybe like you think of even in, oh, I don't know, Medieval days, a king who's just a, an authority unto himself. The king's rule is law, and that's it. They're not going to be that kind of king. That was the kind of king the nations had. That's the kind of king that Saul will become. But here God is pleading with the people through Samuel, pleading with Saul himself. That's not the plan. There'll be a king under me, not a king Instead of me. And some of the worthless men here, they got it. They were probably among those. It says, all the people were shouting praise. All the people were saying, long live the king in verse 24. All the people, but then some of them turned into these worthless men who said, can this kind of king save us? Are we still relying on on this invisible God? They're worthless because like Eli's sons, same word, worthless, they did not know the Lord. Saul can bring a season of salvation, but only because God says so. He is God's anointed for the time. And so these worthless men are wrong to doubt it. But ironically, they're right in asking Can this man save us? That's the question going forward in the book of 1 Samuel. Can this man save us? And Saul is a mixed bag. Right from the beginning, we're seeing that there are these seedlings of blessings and blunders in this giant fella. And so Saul shows us both similarities and contrasts with the true and eternal 
king who is Jesus. Similarities and contrasts. You see, Saul was outwardly impressive, but not our Savior. Saul was all power on the outside, not much on the inside. It's the reverse with Jesus, whose power was cloaked in weakness and poverty and servantry. Saul was empowered by the Holy Spirit for a task, but he may not have done all that he was supposed to do even in this one chapter. Jesus, on the other hand, was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do all of his Father's will perfectly. Saul couldn't find his donkeys. But remember, Jesus told his disciples once, hey, hey guys, go into town, and you're going to find this donkey and get him. And if the guy asks you, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Say, the Lord requires it. Samuel walk, uh, sorry, Saul walked back home without donkeys. Our Savior walked on a donkey into Jerusalem in his victorious march on the symbol of kingly peace, the donkey. Saul was fearful, not humble. But Jesus was humble and not fearful. Saul was shy about his anointing, but Jesus preached with authority that was astonishing in his time. Like Saul, who at the end of this chapter held his peace when he was despised, so too Jesus was silent before his enemies and did not revile. Here, Saul and Jesus are similar, but Saul will break this trend in chapters to come. The people cried out of Saul, Long live the king! But that had an inevitable expiration date. He not only dies in this book, but he dies in ugly and sad death. But Jesus, the eternal one, he died, yes, in ugly and sad death, but he was raised in victory and reigns forever. Saul will, in the end, be every bit a king like the nations have. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. At best, Saul could save Israel temporarily from the Philistines or the Ammonites. But he could do nothing with this recurring problem of Israel's sin. He could do nothing about his own sin, which was great in many. But Jesus was the sinless king who laid his life down for his sheep. The righteous one died in place of the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. He canceled our debt. He paid our price. He bore the judgment that we deserve that we might go free. And not free to forsake God, but free to flee to God and have communion with him and worship of him forever and ever. Do you know that kind of freeing gospel hope that's only in Jesus? It's not in princes. 
It's not in swords or, or governments. It's not in any of the idols of this world. It's only in God, the God-man Jesus who died in our place. Saul reminds us of Jesus in both negative and positive ways, but Saul is also a lesson for us. Saul had a decent beginning in these two chapters. We've seen hints of his benefits and blessings in chapters 9 and 10. We'll see more of it next week as he goes to war and, and beats up on the Philistines. But standing at the edge of chapter 10... And looking forward, it's as if the story is still to be written in a sense. In other words, if we were living in the days of chapter 10 and we were among those who were going home having seen the coronation of Saul and now there's a king, the future would still be unseen. You'd still wonder, what will become of this Saul? Will he go God's way? Will he be God's man? Will he be under God? Or will he be instead of God? It's a fork in the road moment at the end of chapter 10. And I think that fork in the road moment is helpful for us at any time and all the time, in any season. You see, every day is a fork in the road. Every decision a fork in the road. Today is Sunday, the first day of the week. Today we begin a new week. How will it go? How will you go? Which way will you go? Maybe you're at the fork in the road of a, a new chapter in life. Maybe marriage is new to you or kids are or a new job has started, maybe even a new career. Maybe you're in your first year of college. Maybe you're in your first year of empty nesting or retirement or a new battle with illness or a slump in your marriage or a new sin struggle. How will it go? What will the new chapter, the next chapter, say? How will you turn out? Saul is a supreme example of the truth that good beginnings do not always equate to good endings. Judas would be another one of those in the New Testament. Oh, sure, God is in your life, and he's in control, and we've seen God's sovereignty throughout these chapters in a special and unique way. But human responsibility is real, and his sovereignty is no excuse for your sin. He will take all of the credit for whatever fruit you have, whatever good you do, whatever holiness you grow in. And he will take none of the blame for the sin you choose. He will take none of the blame for years of waywardness. He will take none of the blame when you walk away from the faith. That's yours. But may it not be. May Saul be this 
tragic character in God's word, which not only points us to a better king who removes our sin and is our righteous reigning Lord, but, but let Saul also be this lesson. Go God's way and keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. Keep your heart with all diligence for from it spring things of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help for that, that you'd keep us. If we're yours, if Jesus died in our place, if we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, we pray you would not only apply that grace, but you would keep us in faith and grow us in holiness. We pray you'd give us conviction of sin. We pray our repentance would be real. We pray we wouldn't trust in self. We pray we wouldn't fear men. We pray you would be king, king over all. Lord, we pray that Jesus' name would be a banner over our lives and a banner over this church and a banner over the future. May we say with the Apostle Paul right now, and ever more so, for me to live is Christ. And hence, dying is gain. Give us Jesus. He's the Lord, our Savior and King. We pray in his name. Amen.